Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. But there's also a negative effect to like pushing, pushing, pushing more and more calories too. More isn't always better. And what we have now found out is that just going straight back to a calculated maintenance intake for your current body weight and current energy expenditure is actually better. And so you see people report very low calorie intakes, 1,000 to 1,200 calories even, and no weight loss on those calories. Hello again. This is Meredith Root, and you are listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. And boy, do we have an episode for you today. Tactic head coach and our good buddy, Lindsay Martin, is back on the show. In this episode, we are going to talk all about reverse dieting, which is a word and a concept that has been in the fitness and nutrition space for eons. I'm talking like since dinosaurs and cavemen and all that sort of stuff. We're going to talk about where the science stands today with reverse dieting and how a lot of people who think they know how it works are actually basing those opinions on anecdotal evidence that isn't really well supported by actual empirical data. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for reverse dieting in health and weight loss and in your journey. It just may not be for the reasons that you think, which is metabolic adaptation. We're going to talk about the Matador diet. We're going to talk about bodybuilding. We're going to talk about the biggest loser. We're going to talk about so much stuff. It's going to be an awesome episode and we can't wait to share this with you. been joining Lindsay in workouts on Thursday at the gym and it's been really fun but every time Meredith and I are crippled and we're not like it's not like a two-day soreness it's like five days yeah the one it was a week <laughs> I did the, we did the Thursday and then the following Thursday there was like a hanging movement and I was like I don't know if my arms can they're not recovered from last Thursday <laughs> There was a point after that workout that it had 100 chest bars, 100 cal row, 100 chest bars, 100 wall balls. At one point, I think it was Sunday, and we did the workout on Thursday. I was like questioning whether I was still sore if I was actually injured. Yeah. <laughs> no. I will say that one was like the workout plus the like accessory. The stuff. Yeah. It was a lot on the biceps. Yeah. The old <laughs> biceps and forearms yeah. were pretty rough. Because we left and we drove to Fernie after that. It's three hours drive. I think I ate three scones on the way home, <laughs> on the way to Fernie. We'll go to Cobbs and get six scones. And I'm like, this will last us the week. And then literally the next day, I'm like, oh, I could go for like a piece of a scone. And I'm like, where are the scones? <laughs> this is the next day. You eat six scones. Oh, really, it's like You eat some too. I know, I'm trying to exaggerate it. <laughs> for dramatic effect. For dramatic effect. <laughs> no, it's good. We're helping. The only, the reason we're doing workouts with Lindsay is not because we enjoy getting pummeled every single week, but you're trying to be competitive mm -hmm. this year. A long time ago, we were competitive. And sometimes we still have flashes where our abilities maybe exceed our current capacity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> In those moments, we can provide a good 
push. We're like those like ex football players or like ex hockey player dude athletes that walk into a CrossFit gym and they're like they can do the movements and they have the ability to push, but they're not actually in good shape anymore. And then they get rhabdo. So like <laughs> yeah. the only like good thing that's coming out of this is neither one of us has actually gotten rhabdo yet. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we are definitely in the demographic of people that you should keep your eye on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure. And like our egos definitely are too big risk. to just like let off the gas pedal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I, I was doing those chest bars and I got to the point where I had to switch to like classic kipping. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's been years since <laughs> I've done this. Where you're like on your last thread, just kipping like Hail Mary. Bar, you only have like three <laughs> fingers on the bar. <laughs> One arm is stronger than the other, so you only touch one (laughs) chest, one part of your chest. Like count it. You got a single tit on the bar. Count the chest bar. Okay. It's my chest. It's my right chest. I beat Meredith by one second last week. Yes. One second. Love that for me so much. No, it's been very good for me though, and like I was thinking about it a little bit. It's like a little bit surreal because I remember the first time. I when saw you Alec. never beat us? Yeah, well, that. <laughs> it's been <laughs> surreal for us, too. <laughs> Please continue. No, like the first time I ever actually saw Alex in real life was at this other gym in Calgary. And I was too nervous to even acknowledge her existence like whatsoever. Yeah, like didn't make eye contact. I think she was there to do an open workout. And so I just like stayed out of her way. And so now to like be like doing these workouts with you guys and like it being like a little bit not flipped obviously like we're like friends and like but I'm like at this like level is kind of just like a crazy cool experience and so I have like really appreciated you guys doing them with me because it's been yeah pretty sick I will say (laughs) it's been really fun yeah I'm in a relationship with Alex and sometimes I also avoid making eye contact (laughs) I will say and not to get too much into this topic I kind of thought the last couple of years, like even though I've been running more, I'm still doing CrossFit. So I'm like, I kind of had this idea that I was still like really good, which I am in comparison. Like I'm still able to do a lot of the movements and like do well in workouts. But it's amazing. Like when you go up against somebody who's training hard yeah. for this, I have lost that top end. Like, mm-hmm. and it's, if, and I can't recover like any, like I have to do that workout and then go home. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Like it, it's been a bit of a adjustment to my ego. Like, okay, yeah, actually all this running and like you training in your basement by yourself, not trying very hard actually has an impact on your fitness. Yeah. And like the the mental aspect of like, I just can't go there. Yeah. So it was, it's been interesting. It's amazing how training can really help and training in the right way and training with that, like, I'm here now, I'm going to push to that next level. It makes a difference to your fitness, yeah. especially at the level you're at and like how competitive it is. So good job. Thanks. Thanks. Fingers crossed. She's three, yeah. She has three W's in her pocket. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I think we're, we have our own W's, Alex. Yeah. We're taking our personal wins. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking today about reverse dieting, which is a word that has been in the, in, in the nutrition space forever. A long time. The diet after the diet. I guess we're going to talk a little about what it is and what it isn't and where the science stands on it. So yeah, I wrote a blog post about it. I think it's still on the website, the diet after the diet. And that would have been in 2019, 2020. If you're interested in what we thought about reverse dieting, (laughs) 
<laughs> it's in there. If you want to know what re- reverse dieting is in, yeah. go to our blog. <laughs> so you're saying it hasn't aged well? No, it has not aged well. It's a good summary of what we thought reverse dieting was good for. And honestly, what I thought it was good for up until right now, because I saw this article come out and I didn't want to read it because I knew it was just going to challenge everything that I thought. But I'm just kidding. I really did want to read it because we want to be like learning and growing. And if new stuff comes out that changes our mind, we want to change our mind if the evidence is there. That sounds a lot like science. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so this, I guess, would be the biggest thing that I've changed my mind on since becoming a nutrition coach. So it's kind of cool to talk about, to kind of like sum up what reverse dieting is. Like Meredith said, it's like the diet after the diet. So essentially you diet down, you say you hit your goal weight or like a a weight that you're good at or you feel good about, but you don't think that the calorie intake that you're at is necessarily sustainable. So one possible solution would be to gradually increase calories over time. And what that is supposed to do is to help kind of reverse some of the metabolic adaptations that happen when dieting. So we also did a podcast about reds. Some of those things can happen if the if the deficit is extreme or you stay in it for a long time or it's not periodized or it's just not matched well to your energy expenditure. So then the idea is that by slowly increasing it, you allow yourself to ramp up your metabolic rate so that you can keep body weight that you've dieted down to, but you can eat more calories and maintain it. So it was like, obviously that's best case scenario and you would want to do that. That seems like a great solution. What we have now found out through actual research, because there wasn't actually a ton of research, there was just a lot of anecdotal stories coming mostly from the bodybuilding world. And the reason for that was that they're just like a very extreme example. And so like a good kind of place to look at when we're looking at like adherence and stuff, because people generally adhere to these like deficits or like calorie restriction more when they have that goal of being half naked up on stage. (laughs) It just kind of adds that extra factor. So anyways, they're just a good population to kind of study in that regard. And then they also tend to want to like keep as much of that leanness as they can, but they generally are experiencing a lot of those like symptoms of relative energy deficiency because they've gotten so lean. So what would some of those be? So again, we're looking at decreasing like thyroid hormones, your like energy is going to go down, your like non-exercise activity thermogenesis is going to subconsciously kind of decrease. For females, we're looking at loss of a menstrual cycle, so an impact reproductive hormones. Some of the other things like gastrointestinal effects, like we talked about in the REDS podcast. So looking at what's the name of it? Irritable bowel. Yeah. So like symptoms of that and just like not enough food moving through the system. So you get like digestive upset and things like that. Your immune function isn't as robust. So you get sick more often. Low libido. Yep. Yeah, exactly. that's the worst one. Yeah, presumably your fat intake is really low, so all of those really important things that cholesterol is involved with just kind of start to shut Sex down. Sex hormones, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so the idea is that reverse dieting kind of reverses all of those things, and so again, while allowing you to stay lean, and what we have now found out is that just going straight back to a calculated maintenance intake for your current body weight and current energy expenditure is actually better. Like you can just go right back to it. Yeah. So just, if you're like, if you started at 2,400 and then you were eating 1,900, you can just go right back up to like... So probably not 2,400 because you are a smaller person. So you do have to recalculate 
what your maintenance now is. And it's probably going to be a little bit less than it was when you were a heavier person. But you should be able to go say it was 2400 before and now you're a little bit smaller. So now it's like 2250 or 2200. You could go right back to 2200. No, like, okay, we're going to do 50 calories a week. Like yeah. nothing like that. Yeah. So there's like a lot of different ways that people like recommended doing reverse dieting. The way that I typically did it was by focusing mostly on carbs. So increasing carbs by like anywhere between two to 5% each time you bump it up. And then just making sure that fat was within that 25 to 30% range of total calories. So you bumped it up when you needed to. I've seen other people that increase just calories and then distribute macros as needed. Protein usually stays the same or can even start to go down because the reason protein needs to be high when you're in a deficit is to protect against muscle loss versus once you do get to maintenance, you don't need to protect against that as much. The protein can either stay the same or if there was like some reason that you wanted to lower it, you could lower it a little bit too. But yeah, basically the concept is the same. You're just like slowly increasing your intake over time and it ends up yeah being like 20 to 50 calories or 50 to 100 calories, very small increases. And so yeah, you will either see, you can see any th of three things. You'll see weight go down, you'll see weight stay the same, or you'll see weight slowly creep up as you adjust to it. And there, what we found out is that it's likely that as you're increasing, you're actually still in a deficit for a period of time. Not likely, it's the, that is the case. You're still in a deficit. So an example, this article that we're looking at is by Eric Trexler. And his example is like, let's look at a 12-week reverse diet for those like first nine weeks you're actually still in a deficit. Which makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so if you were to like continue with that pattern of like adding a little bit, eventually you would hit maintenance. And then if you kept going, you would eventually, and this is like common sense, eventually you would hit maintenance. And then if you kept going, you would hit a surplus. And so the claim that he's trying to combat there is that like you can't build up your metabolic rate. Like it just kind of is what it is. Yeah. And it, it, there's probably a range. There's like your like lower end range and a higher end range, but it like, there's like a set range. And once you pass it, you're going to start gaining weight. Even if, because you're doing it so slowly, you don't notice it right away. And yeah. you think that you're like building up your metabolic rate, but you're actually just getting incrementally closer to your maintenance. And then eventually hitting a surplus where you will start to gain weight and you can't actually build up your metabolic rate. So you're delaying the inevitable, which is going back to maintenance and likely gaining back your weight, especially as a bodybuilder where you're, you don't want to stay in the two to 3% body fat range for somebody who's just like a regular person and they get down to like 20% a healthy body fat percentage, let's just say hypothetically, then the reverse diet back to maintenance would probably just take them out of a deficit. So they stop losing weight and then they maintain that weight. Whereas bodybuilding you end up kind of wanting to go back to a surplus because they don't want to stay at the two to 3%. Well, and your body doesn't want you to stay at yeah. Yeah. body fat percentage. So you're really delaying the inevitable, which is either increasing your body weight or going back to a maintenance to maintain the current body weight, but you're delaying the benefits of increasing your calories. Exactly. Just yeah. getting out of the downsides to being in a calorie deficit, which is like, yeah, low energy, feeling tired, feeling hungry, which is a big one for people. And then all the other things that come with reds, which... And if you're in a, if you're like train, yeah, at high level and mm -hmm. recover fast and all those things. If you're in a conservative deficit, you're probably not going to be, hopefully not experiencing like severe hunger, like then reds, like maybe a bodybuilder would. Right. But you still, 
being in a deficit is not easy for most people. No. And that's kind of what he was saying too, is like, even if you do build up your calories and then you end up creating a deficit, it's equally as hard, like uh, adherence or like hunger wise, if you go from 2,400 calories to 200 calories, as if you were to go from like 1,900 calories to 1,700 calories, which like, if that is your true maintenance, I can see how that makes sense. It would, I guess, be if you were working with someone who was like currently maintaining their weight on, I don't know, again, like 1400 calories and you take them to 12 or 12 and you go to a thousand. That to me seems like just like practically very hard. Like, and he's saying that it, it actually like physiologically isn't any harder if you're truly at your maintenance. I mean, I guess like if you're smaller, then I guess you just wouldn't feel as hungry and it yeah. is, if it is probably feels like more food to them than it does to someone who is like a larger person. Yeah. Like, do you ever have, let's just say like a female, most likely come in and they're 105 pounds and they're just a regular person. They're not a high level athlete or training a ton. And then you, you figure out their maintenance calories and you're like, Oh yeah. But like, and you have to give them whatever that number is, which might be around 1400 calories. And you're like, this seems extremely low. Is this ethical? But like, that's the amount of food that they need. They're not going to feel really hungry because their body is smaller. Yeah. yeah. Two things. I have two observations. The first is I've never made the connection between how great of a motivator standing on stage half naked. Yeah. That's, I, it's like, I like, it's good. you're going to get up on that stage no matter what. A deep brown tan only does so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just never thought about that aspect of bodybuilding. That's certainly would be a motivator for dietary compliance. <laughs> And then the second thing that is somewhat off topic, but still on topic is this whole concept of in the school of thought that I learned from originally and granted, I've we've certainly deviated since then. And I won't name names is that you can eat more to increase your metabolic rate, which then would result in more calories leading to a leaner body composition. Mm-hmm. And you see this really pushed on, especially high level games athletes, where it's just like more food, more food, more food. We're going to drive up your metabolic rate and that's going to help you output in the gym. But really what's like what I'm assuming is going on is we push past like, let's say a 150 pound female athlete who's, you know, daily energy intake needs are around, let's call it 2,800 calories a day. And all of a sudden you start feeding that athlete 3,000 or 3,100 or 3,200 calories a day. That's like theory. Or 4,000. Yeah, in a calorie surplus. So what happens then? You're going to see, I guess, training output goes up, energy expenditure goes up, the thermic effect of food is higher. There are a lot of things that will, like an athlete especially can do to burn that extra food off. And maybe that like helps their athletic performance. But it sounds like this idea that food intake in either direction can have a big impact on metabolic rate is sort of fallacious for controlling for lean body mass. Because what you might see with an athlete like that is you feed them 300 extra calories a day and their lean body mass starts to go up. That's a good point. And what I think was part of what happened to me, because I considered myself like a beneficiary of reverse dieting. And I think a couple of things happened. I started CrossFit, which meant my energy expenditure went way higher than it was before when I was just like traveling Australia. And then I started putting muscle on because I like increased the amount of food that I was eating and I was doing this training modality. So now I'm just like a more metabolically, I have more metabolically active tissue. 
So that increases my calorie needs yeah. as well. But if you're just looking at on paper and you're not considering that, you're like, holy cow, I'm eating more and I'm not gaining body fat. Yeah. But you're gaining something. And that something is lean body mass, which is what is driving your calorie needs up. Yep. But there's also a negative effect to like pushing, pushing, pushing more and more calories too. More isn't always better. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly you could just call it diminishing returns mm-hmm. above a certain point. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're going to expend so much energy digesting the food that you're eating. And then you have to consider like granted Herman Ponser's research is not done on an athletic community, but certainly that whole constrained model of energy expenditure would apply to some effect to some degree to athletes. And so you just find ways to burn energy. And then obviously like you can put on so much muscle mass that it inhibits athletic performance when you get to a certain level. The theory behind reverse dieting, as opposed to just going straight back to a new maintenance, Mm -hmm. is that you maintain your leanness and then ending up at your maintenance calories. So you can eat more, maintain the leanness. Well, let's start with, let's be scientific. We'll start with the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that if you're in a calorie deficit for a prolonged period of time and you go right back to maintenance calorie intake, that your metabolism would have adapted negatively to such a degree that your maintenance intake would then be a surplus and result in body fat gain if you were to go right back to it. So by stepwise moving towards your maintenance or what your new maintenance is, quote unquote, you allow your metabolism to rebound slowly and offset any negative body composition effects that may happen. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's where, that's where the reverse diet comes in. So can we talk about starvation mode? Cause I know a lot of people who are in starvation mode and they're not losing weight. Yeah. So that was, that was sarcastic. <laughs> it seems to come down in that area to adherence. And like compliance and not necessarily, I don't want to say like dishonesty because I don't think it's usually like purposely like lying to their coach or lying to my fitness pal about how much they're taking in. It's like there are outside pressures as well as like your own internal pressures now trying to like fight against you more so like, like psychologically because the hunger starts to increase. And so then you'll just like have a bite of something here and there and maybe not log it. So you think... You're only eating whatever, 800 calories, but you're not accounting for some of it. Or you're only eating 800 calories for three days. And then on the weekends, you're eating way more. And again, I don't think that that's usually any like type of like deceit or like trying to like lie to themselves or their coaches. It's just that like the hunger and meat and stuff, hunger is going to go up. Non-exercise activity is going to subconsciously go down and that's going to make it seem like you're resistant. It's like unconscious inaccuracy. Yeah. You're fighting a losing battle because you're fighting against your, like your physiology and what you're like, humans aren't evolved to intentionally lose weight. And so when that starts to happen and it doesn't matter, like, I think a lot of people have this idea that if you have a lot of body fat on your body that, oh, my body knows that. So it obviously knows that I have weight to lose but it doesn't. It's going to sense any calorie deficit as a threat to survival and just start to kick in all of these protective mechanisms, a lot of which are psychological. As you extend the duration of the calorie deficit, cravings go up, especially for like hyper palatable foods you've had in the past. Like calorie, you start to have cravings for like donuts or your mom's macaroni and cheese, things like that. It's not just cravings for like apples and chicken. It's cravings for food that your brain has a memory of and it knows it gets a lot of calories from those foods. But did we say what starvation mode is? No. Starvation mode is the theory that 
when calories are dropped to a certain low level, that again, your metabolism will respond to such a degree that it prevents that calorie deficit from being effective for the purpose of losing weight. And so you see people report very low calorie intakes, 1000 to 1200 calories even, and no weight loss on those calories. And those people can be 200 pounds and up. So in theory, on paper, that is a extreme caloric deficit and they're not losing weight. And the explanation for that is not starvation mode. It's that they're tracking accuracy. They aren't weighing and measuring general compliance is going down. They're not reporting what they're actually eating. And like Lindsay said, that's not necessarily intentional. We are really, really bad humans, even dietitians, even people who are professionals at nutrition or in the field of nutrition under report calories consumed. And they mentioned that in the article, like, and those, like when they, they tested some dietitians and they were all just like trying to eat at maintenance. And so that's one thing when you're just trying to like eat to maintain your weight, the amount of like tricks that your mind can play on you when you're like deep into a calorie deficit and you're friggin' hungry, your memory can like go out the window. Like yeah. you literally don't even remember like popping that handful of trail mix mm-hmm. or whatever into your mouth. Some people will underreport by over 50%. Mm-hmm. So somebody who say, says they're eating 1,000 calories could be eating over 2,000 or more calories and reporting to their coach or to themselves that they're only eating 1,000 and then getting upset or frustrated that they're not losing weight. It's difficult. And this is a different topic. It's difficult as a coach to say, yeah, this isn't. So yeah. So then again, like the solution in my mind up until like now would have been let's try reverse dieting. Like you seem resistant to losing weight at 1200 calories. So if we build your calories back up and then enter a deficit, that should work. But really what would be happening in that scenario would likely be that their adherence would go up because it wouldn't be so hard to stick to that calorie intake at a certain point. When you can control or observe calorie intake in a lab setting, so like controlled feeding studies, which are pretty rare Mm -hmm. from a nutrition standpoint, just because they're very hard to set up and you can't do them for long periods of time. You do see like the paper on paper, people's number one, their resting metabolic rate is typically within 5% of what researchers think that it should be. So expected values and observed values are very close. So there's not a great deal of metabolic adaptation that occurs and that they've done that to populations of people that report being diet resistant. So these people who are reporting low energy intake and not losing weight, they do a doubly labeled water measurement on their metabolism, exactly what it should be. And then on top of that, when you control, you do control feeding for calorie intake, maintenance calorie intake is also usually very close to what it is expected to be. You know, when you can control, you put people in controlled lab settings, the numbers start to make more sense. Mm -hmm. And that is again, and it's not to to point fingers or cast blame, but it does kind of highlight how inaccurate measuring calories can be. I mean, and there's probably 10% error built in or more on food labels and on most consumer level at home kitchen scales. Like there's so much error that it just, I think people need to be open to the idea that they're not as accurate for whatever reason as they think that they're being. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to my, my next question, which is these studies that have been, and these faint, really famous studies 
that have been done specifically to address this metabolic adaptation, one being Matador, which is a, a protocol for weight loss that alternates two weeks on at maintenance and then two weeks at a, I think, 30% calorie deficit, which is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. And the design of that protocol is meant to offset any kind of metabolic adaptation and continue to progress weight loss. And what researchers saw is in that study, which I, th- I think is long, it's on the longer side, like six months, maybe the participants who were following the Matador protocol, the two weeks on two weeks off lost more weight and body fat than participants who were just on a steady, I think must've been a 15% calorie deficit from baseline. So they saw better results. So I guess that brings us to this, the second part of the reverse diet, which is the psychological component. Well said. Yeah. I just have to say well <laughs> that said. That's a really good segue. <laughs> yeah. So the psychological component just can't be disregarded. It's just huge. And so again, like with the Matador study, it kind of turns out that it doesn't have anything to do with mitigating the metabolic adaptations that happen when dieting. It probably does actually help, but the changes are like pretty insignificant, like a change in like 50 calories per day. And it's more to do with adherence and like the ability to stick to the calorie deficit when they're in it. It gives them some kind of psychological reprieve when they're on maintenance instead of the deficit, which again, just allows them to stick to it better when they're in the deficit and it leads to better results. Yeah, it's better than saying to a client, and I'll say I use a conservative deficit with most of my clients, but for some people, it's better to say, you're going to do this for 14 days, Mm -hmm. then you get a break. Mm -hmm. And the break isn't like a free for all. It's you're still at maintenance, which Mm -hmm. for a lot of people takes effort and you a lot of people still need to track. But the 14 days, it allows them it's there's a timeline. It's like I can be accurate for 14 days for two weeks and then I go back and then it's like a reset. OK, 14 more days. Yeah. Whereas with just a deficit, you know, you're going six to eight weeks at a 15 percent deficit for some people even longer. It's a little bit harder because there's no timeline. It's mm-hmm. like, OK, when do I get a break? And so sometimes for my, most of my clients, a diet break occurs when you know, they get to a point where they're going to be going on vacation or the hunger is too much. There's different approaches. It really does come down to general compliance and the the mental component. Yeah. And if someone wants to believe that Matador is going to work for them, it will work. Mm -hmm. And I've used Matador successfully with people. I almost never use that 30%. 30% is a lot. Yeah, that's a very drastic. You are hungry. (laughs) Yeah. But using that, that structure anyways... And also selling it as like, we're doing this and here's why, you know, and maybe you could sell it with the psychological angle and less the metabolic adaptation angle and it would work just as well. But it does seem to work when you give people those intermittent sort of checkpoints. Again, I I don't ever want to lie to my clients, but I also think that it's like easier to buy into if you can say like, this is physiologically happening. It's not that I think that you psychologically can't handle the deficit. It's like this is like physiologically better for you is just like a better selling point. Your physiology is affecting your psychology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, people like extremes too. They, they probably feel it working because they're, oh, they're really hungry. Yeah. They like timelines like, okay, 14 days. It's like the 30 day, like whole 30, yeah, it's 30 days. Like, yeah, people are successful. Problem is like, you can't just do two weeks and expect to see this like drastic change in weight. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people actually do go back up when they go to maintenance and mm-hmm. like the weight still fluctuates. 100%. And so if you're on the Matador for four or six months, you're doing six, four to six cycles of it 
you have to be mentally prepared for just like general weight loss fluctuations. Yeah. So it's, it's not like, oh, you're going to see a, you know, a two or three pound drop in two weeks and then you maintain that. Like there's still ups and downs. There's still ups and downs on the two weeks and the lower calories. Also, and that can mess with people. Have you ever had someone quit like mid matador? Yes. You? It's like they're in their <laughs> yeah. and they're like, I think I'm going to be done with nutrition coaching. And you're like, well, no, we haven't even gotten to the point where I explained to you that this didn't work for the reasons that you think it did. Yeah. And also, you can't stay in this cut forever. <laughs> so Sometimes it's a commitment to a longer term process there. Yeah. So let's talk about the psychological effect with reverse dieting. Mm -hmm. So where would you still use the concept of reverse dieting where you're slowly incrementally increasing calories with somebody rather than just going straight back to maintenance? So yeah, so with someone who isn't, I guess, psychologically like ready to see quite a bit of like weight gain right off the bat. So like going right back to maintenance, you're going to increase carbs, you're going to increase then water retention, going like drastically back up to maintenance if it is drastic or even just like two, 300 more calories, you are going to see like a sharp increase in weight, which some people just psychologically like can't cope with. So then like doing it incrementally allows it to happen either slowly or it like instead of going up and then coming back down, it'll just stay the same the whole time. And so then they psychologically feel better about that. Yeah. Cause usually with weight loss, you almost never, the lowest number that you see on the scale is not usually the number that you're going to settle in at. Like we tend to, and this happens in either direction, even for people who are trying to gain weight, you tend to overshoot the target a little bit and then normalize at a weight that's either a little bit higher or a little bit lower than you were shooting for. And then even within that oscillation, it can be like an over, you, your weight comes back up and then it goes back down maybe by 50% of it, what it came up by. And then you start settling around that. Mm-hmm. But I think people want, they, they're like, no, I saw this number on the scale. I want to stay at this number. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I can understand that desire, but also it's like, that's just not typically how it happens. Yeah. So one of Eric's recommendations as far as like dieting was, and you don't really know, I don't think anyone truly knows exactly where their like intervention points are as far as like their set, their body weight set points. But he basically was like, pick a goal weight that is within your set point range because your body is just going to fight you on either end to try to get back into that range. So like the leanest that you can like healthily be is probably right around that like lower intervention point and the heaviest that you can healthily be would be at the upper end of your upper intervention point. We talk about the dual intervention in the set point theory podcast that we did, which we'll make sure is in the show notes for this one. But people have no idea what that is. And so what if you just arbitrarily pick a number that is below that lower intervention point and then you're just like, what, unhappy with anything that's actually like physiologically where you should be. Mm-hmm. It's like hard to get people to understand that and also accept that that number is just going to be maybe a touch higher than they want it to be. But also who cares? Why do we care so much? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think another way to use the reverse dieting strategy is for people who struggle just with the the numbers. So like eating more just is scary. Mm-hmm. Even if they're on a deficit losing weight, And they're like, okay, I've hit where I feel good. And you're like, okay, we're going to stop with the deficit and go back up. That's scary. Like, Mm -hmm. even though you could tell them logically, like, we're going back up to maintenance here. Maintenance, like, it's going to be okay. They're just, there's something about eating more. Because eating more equals weight gain. Mm -hmm. Even if it's still within a deficit or maintenance. 
the also argument for just going back to maintenance is that you're then restoring any of these things that have happened as a result of relative energy deficiency. You're restoring all those things, those symptoms faster by just going back to maintenance. But if you do do it more gradually, I think like, I think going right back to that, like is not only psychologically difficult, it could physically be difficult to eat that much food again. Yeah. Especially if you're looking at like a five to 600 calorie increase. Yeah. That's like a whole meal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That you're having to add in. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think people, especially if you're trying to do it with like a lot of whole foods and, and do it like more healthily, which you should, it would feel quite hard to do that. I think the language that we're using around reverse dieting has been incorrect, I guess, because <laughs> we're not like fixing metabolic adaptation. But I still think that there is a place for it. Agreed. Yeah. So like I, if you have a client who's coming out of a deficit, not necessarily bodybuilding, but you could say, okay, you're eating 1600 calories. Your maintenance is at 1850, mm -hmm. according to the math. They will say, well, what if I gain my weight back? Mm -hmm. And you're like, you won't, you won't, it'll be fine. But like, there's a lot of resistance because they they worked so hard to get down to a body composition or a body weight. So it might be better for you to say, okay, we're going to bring it back up to 1650. Two weeks later, you say, did you gain weight? Is everything okay? Yeah, everything's okay. I, you know, they, okay, let's go up to 1700. It's almost like getting them to trust that it's okay to eat more and nothing, you know, they're not going to just like blow up like a balloon. So even just that can be helpful. There's a coaching opportunity there too. To you like, calling me a bad coach? <laughs> obviously, I'm calling you a good coach. Oh, there's a coaching opportunity there to help reverse some of those thought processes, though, which is the fear that increasing calorie intake is going to cause weight gain. I think there's an op if you explain it and you use the right language instead of saying, well, we're going to help walk you out of any metabolic adaptation because then people make this metabolic adaptation into this really mm -hmm. scary thing. You say like, well, that's not actually a thing, but it is hard to increase calories for other reasons. So we're going to walk out of that. Your metabolism is totally fine. It's going to come right back up to the level that it needs to be as soon as we give you more food. And you just kind of like demonstrate to people that there's not really anything to be afraid of. Once that initial kind of any kind of initial gain goes away, I think that's having people experience that and be like, oh, okay. Like food isn't something that I should be afraid of. Like, and this is part of the process. Can we talk about the phenomenon where somebody comes to us saying, I'm eating 1600 calories and I'm not losing weight. And then of course, to us, that's on the low end for whatever body mass they have. And then you increase their calories. You give them, okay, I want you to eat 2000. And then they lose weight. Well, I think we've already talked about that. But it's just more practical because yeah. I'm sure some of our listeners are sitting here being like, oh, it still doesn't make sense. Yeah. And that's that whole like, oh, I'm eating more but losing weight, which like some coaches love that. And when a client says that, they plaster it on their Instagram because it is great marketing. It's like, hey, come you work see it everywhere mm -hmm. and you can eat more and lose weight. But what's actually going on is the person was reporting 1600 calories per day, but in actuality, maybe they're eating 1600 calories a day, you know, two to three days per week, but their average daily intake was probably more towards, let's call it 2400 calories per day, which would be in line with the percent error that we see with reporting a lot. And then you feed them quote unquote more 2000 calories. And because now they're working with a coach, they're more compliant with their logging. So they're accurately logging 2000 calories a day, which is quote unquote, more than they were eating before and losing weight. It's the same mechanism. It's still a calorie deficit. It's just... Yeah. And they don't spend two or three days at 1600 calories, feel so hungry 
and snack at night mm-hmm. or or just go crazy on the weekend because they're so hungry without really acknowledging like how many calories is actually in those snack foods that they're devouring out of their pantry, which is like, I'm not, it's not like a negative thing. It's just, this is no, what happens. Like also the, the coaches in these companies know this, like, let's just call a spade a spade. And like the calorie deficit is working. The compliance and accuracy and reporting before was just not up to snuff. Yeah. That's all that is. I think one thing that, again, I used to think happened when you like then overfed or just fed more than they, they were eating before was that like their non-exercise activity thermogenesis meat would go up too. And one thing that they have found now as well is that there could be like a mix of cause and effect. So again, like in my case, like my energy expenditure went up significantly when I started CrossFit. So then I needed more food to fuel that. So then my like my total daily energy expenditure and therefore my maintenance calorie need was higher. But I thought that it was because my intake was going up, my need went up and it was it's like it's backwards just, yeah the, the mechanism is not or the the driver of that change isn't what you think yeah is, is yeah. opposite so that could be a thing also yeah yeah I mean I think this is just it's another example that the metabolism and there's just there's more and more research that has been coming out about the metabolism and we're looking at it from all these different angles like the reverse diet angle like the Herman Ponser constrained model of energy expenditure angle And we're just finding that it's a little, it's a lot more robust and a lot more enduring than I think people were led to believe historically. It's still flexible and it's, it should be because it's the reason why we have a metabolism is so that we can respond to changes in our environment, which helps with survival. Like we have a much more flexible metabolism than almost any other animal on earth, but it's not that flexible. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it doesn't go up by huge numbers and it is very hard to, cause long lasting and irref ir- ir- how do I say that word? Irreparable. Irreparable yeah. damage to it. Where like it just doesn't respond. Like yeah. that's we don't see that. Like the even the Minnesota starvation experiment, which was probably one of the most telling bits of human research done ever. Can't repeat it because ethics. <laughs> but even those people who were in that study didn't have the amount of metabolic damage that you would expect for people who are eating 50% calorie deficit. That is actually one thing that I kind of missed though, is that like in those extreme examples where hunger is so high, it is like very psychologically difficult, but I still think possibly beneficial to reverse diet because if like the leeway is too high, the I think propensity to overeat in some people psychologically could just be too high and they would end up overshooting it way more anyways so if they're the type that can like buy into the incremental increases and like slowly increase it back up to maintenance I could see how that would be beneficial for that type of population as well yeah and there's the leptin the biggest loser longitudinal study mm-hmm. that observed the weight loss and then regained they regained 70 percent of the weight that they had lost which still left them with a 30 percent reduction in body weight which is quite significant and so they saw like our, your RMR because you're getting smaller is going to go down and they saw a corresponding like the rise and fall of leptin made sense with that. But then when they started to put weight back on, leptin didn't respond. So now you have this like dissociation between your metabolic needs and your one of the most important hunger signaling hormones that's in the body. And so your eating patterns are just all messed up, which Mm -hmm. is probably also what happened in the follow-up study to the starvation experiment where you saw these guys just 
overconsume calories by like thousands a day because their hunger signals were completely out of control. Mm -hmm. So that I think definitely does happen and would be, like you said, a good reason to do the, like the reverse diet where you're slowly and like most importantly, monitoring calorie intake. So you don't have that massive sort of counter consumption that can occur after extreme, but that's extreme. That's yeah. Like none of our clients should be in that extreme no, of a calorie deficit <laughs> where it's like, okay, now you're off the diet and they go nuts. Like, yeah. because their hunger signals are so high, that not, shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be dieting to the point where you're having leptin problems. Yeah. yeah. And then, so on that note though, his argument for, Again, going right back to maintenance in someone like that is that it restores leptin quicker. So then like those signals line up quicker. Yeah, because that's the thing with the biggest loser. And the NIH study is really interesting because these people, they're observed. And so they had a medical team involved with that, which is like, again, ethically, really. It was observed weight loss. And then they were kind of like left to their own devices to try to maintain it. And so imagine like you're someone who has, you know, most of their adult life battled with obesity and societal pressure to be smaller and then you have professionals help you get smaller Mm -hmm. and then they're like all right good luck and so what do you do you keep doing what you were doing before which is like crash dieting and exercising to try to keep this weight off except for you're eating more and like the weight's creeping back up and you don't know why and holy moly what a shit show (laughs) literally what a shit show yeah (laughs) yeah it was not a good idea yeah but you're right like had they maybe not had that period of time where they were left to their own devices and had someone who was knew what they were doing or had morals of any kind to be mm-hmm. like, this is what you need to do. Maybe that would have been avoided. But mm-hmm. that whole post-show period just really kind of strung people out. One takeaway, and we harp on this in our Instagram with menopause, is people like to live into their circumstances. And if you think your circumstances that your metabolism is slowing down or you are in starvation mode or your metabolism has adapted to this very low calorie set point, you're only handicapping yourself. Like that's just not the case actually. And the bright side is it's within your control. Yeah. Yeah. For most people, unless you have a disorder, which mm-hmm. almost no one does. And we're, we're not talking about that group of people. Well, you do have to disclaim that because people will come on. Your- <laughs> yeah, they will. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's the, yeah, the silver lining. It can be, it can feel very, and people say this like, oh, this just feels so disheartening mm-hmm. because I've had an experience that isn't this. And it's not to take away from people who struggle with menopause or who struggle with weight loss that like, it's not to say that there aren't difficulties with that, but it's, nothing that is outside of your like locus of control. It's nothing that, yeah, it might be hard, but it's like, there's nothing about your situation that prevents you from making progress. Yeah. And when I use the word control, that can be taken as negative. Sometimes it's not like control what you eat. It's like, it's actionable. Mm -hmm. Like you can take productive steps to change things. You're not stuck in this. You're not a puppet to your life phase or metabolism or whatever like you're you're the puppeteer really and yeah it's like definitely not to say after all of that that like the solution is just to like try harder or adhere more like there are there are definitely still reasons to go back to maintenance and like stay there for a while and because dieting gets hard especially if you're trying for a long time so like periods at maintenance are still very valuable Yeah. Like if you're working on your relationship with food, being in a deficit probably isn't the best approach. Like maintenance is a great place to be. Mm -hmm. 
deficits are not where you want to be when you're working on emotional eating problems. No, like we've used the phrase like earn your right to diet. That doesn't just come like from a physiological standpoint. Mm -hmm. It's also from a mental standpoint. Like if someone comes and they are struggling with binging or something, putting them on a deficit is probably not the right approach. Yeah, just like a schedule, like lifestyle ability Mm -hmm. standpoint like yeah like we talk about moms a lot but just like people who's who maybe just like yeah like schedule wise are not in a place to be able to like make all their own food plan all their own food yeah get eight hours of sleep a night do all those things that like really help you to lose weight so maintenance is beneficial for a lot of reasons yeah like and you can still make huge like improvements in your health and wellness at maintenance Mm -hmm. it's not always weight loss that's i think we i mean we talked about that because that was somewhat of the topic of the discussion today. But I mean, you can hire a nutrition coach to just improve your health and keep your body weight. Mm -hmm. That is something that people do. 100%. Well, golly, this was a great episode. (laughs) I feel like we got so sciencey. I know. I know. It's great. I love it. Yeah, it's good. Yep. Well, Lindsay, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Always a pleasure. Yeah. And yeah, until next time. 